Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. Today in our feature, Enrique Sands from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talks about Monroe County water issues. That's coming up later in the program, but first your environmental headlines. Solar power is casting a shadow on the farm, protecting chickens from the weather and hawks. That's right, free-range chickens can be around solar panels. The chickens do not eat all the grass, so the mower must still come out occasionally. There are many experiments in agrivoltaics, or co-locating solar panels and food production, being undertaken around the United States. The practice had already been happening in countries like the United Kingdom and Uruguay. Over the past few years, more pilot programs have been set up in states like New York. And with a photovoltaic capacity projected to more than double over the next five years, some developers are exploring whether agrivoltaics may ease concerns about farmland being given over to solar production. Agrivoltaics doesn't just include chickens. Other livestock can also roam around solar panels, and some researchers are experimenting with planting crops, too. Animals that graze around solar fields offer several benefits, proponents of agrivoltaics say. Not only does their manure enrich the soil, their munching keeps plants from growing too tall and shading the panels. Another win, they lower vegetation maintenance costs, reducing the need for lawnmowers or landscapers. The winner among livestock so far has been calm, eat anything and everything cheap. In fact, most of the members of the American Solar Grazing Association, founded in 2017, are shepherds. In defiance of a court order, the Trump administration environmental protection agency will not regulate perchlorate, a toxic chemical used in rocket fuel that contaminates drinking water and harms the development of fetuses and small children. The move is in keeping with other Trump administration decisions not to impose recommended limits on toxic chemicals, such as its decision not to ban child-harming pesticide chlorpyrifos or the known carcinogen asbestos, the New York Times pointed out. University of Maryland law professor Rena Steinzorg told the New York Times, quote, you can draw a line between denial of science on climate change, denial of science on coronavirus, and denial of science on the drinking water context. It's all the same issue. They're saying we don't care what the research says, end quote. High concentrations of perchlorate have been found in at least 26 states usually near military sites because of its use in rocket fuel. It has been shown to hamper the development of fetuses and young children by blocking the thyroid glands uptake of iodine and therefore interfering with hormone production. 
The EPA had been ordered by the courts to finalize regulations on the chemical by the end of June. Instead, Administrator Andrew Wheeler will reverse a 2011 EPA finding that the chemical posed a health risk to between 5 and 16 million Americans and argue that it is not in the public interest to regulate it, according to the New York Times. PepsiCo, the world's second largest food and beverage company, has changed its palm oil sourcing policy and agreed to use its influence with other companies to end rainforest destruction and human rights abuses in Indonesian forests, home to the last orangutans, which face extinction. Last year, during the company's annual shareholder meeting, the organization Some of Us presented over a million signatures gathered over five years, asking PepsiCo to cut ties with so-called conflict palm oil, palm oil grown on land deforested deliberately so palm oil plantations could replace the forest. Some of us also broadcast a viral video on the topic that drew more than 20 million views. In response to the signatures and continued pressure, PepsiCo has introduced an industry-leading policy and series of actions to tackle rainforest destruction, worker abuse, and the exploitation of communities for the cheap palm oil it uses heavily in its products. Some of us wasn't the only organization to agitate against conflict palm oil. The Rainforest Action Network, International Labor Rights Forum, and OPUC, an Indonesian organization, contributed to the campaign. The Trump administration is finalizing rules for hunting in Alaska that Jesse Prentice Dunn, policy director for the Center for Western Priorities, calls, quote, amazingly cruel, end quote. He went on to say that rule changes were, quote, just the latest in a string of efforts to reduce protections for America's wildlife at the behest of oil companies and trophy hunters, end quote. The rule changes put in place by the National Park Service will let Alaska hunters kill bear cubs in their dens in Alaska's national preserves. They will also permit the killing of adult bears and wolves, including wolf pups. The rule changes will allow luring bears with food. They will also allow hunters to lure not only cubs, but also females with cubs out of their dens with artificial light. They will permit the use of bait to hunt brown and black bears. What's more, they will allow hunting of wolves and coyotes during the denning season and shooting of caribou from motorboats while the animals are swimming. The Obama administration had prohibited such hunting practices. More than a third of the world's old-growth forests died between 1900 and 2015, a new study has found. In the study, published in Science, nearly two dozen scientists used satellite data combined with more than 160 previous studies to show that deforestation and the climate crisis are killing off older, taller trees and leaving forests younger and shorter. And the trend is likely to continue. We will see fewer forests in the future, said University of Wisconsin forest ecologist Monica Turner. There will be areas where there are forests now where there won't be in the future. The study was led by Nate McDowell of the U.S. Department of Energy's Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, who explained why this change was such a big deal. Quote, a future planet with fewer large old forests will be very different than what we have grown accustomed to. 
Older forests often host much higher biodiversity than young forests, and they store more carbon than young forests, end quote. A very vivid example of the changes studied in this account can be seen in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. It is a vast region with low human population density. In the 1950s, there were many tall trees. The forest was not mostly old growth, since the Upper Peninsula had been logged before, but the trees were several decades old. Now the only tall trees are found in the yards of private property. It's now mile after mile of trees under 30 feet in height. The trees are mostly sold to the paper industry. The future of the hotly contested, environmentally risky Dakota Access Pipeline suffered a major blow recently when a federal court struck down its permits and ordered a comprehensive environmental review called an Environmental Impact Statement to be conducted by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The court ruled that the current permits violate the National Environmental Policy Act. Today, the 1,200-mile pipeline completed three years ago is transporting oil from North Dakota to Illinois, but the court will decide next if it should be shut down until the impact statement is complete. Mike Faith, chair of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, which has been in leading the fight against the pipeline for years, said, quote, after years of defending our water and earth, we welcome this news of a significant legal win. It's humbling to see how actions we took to defend our ancestral homeland continue to inspire national conversations about how our choices ultimately affect the planet. End quote. In December 2016, the Obama administration denied permits for the pipeline to cross the Missouri River and ordered an environmental impact statement to study alternative routes and the pipeline's effects on the tribe's treaty rights. But in his first week in office, President Trump signed an executive order expediting construction. In a pilot study at the University of Helsinki, dogs trained as medical diagnostic assistants were taught to recognize the previously unknown odor signature of the COVID-19 disease caused by the novel coronavirus. And they learned with astonishing success. After only a few weeks, the first dogs were able to accurately distinguish urine samples from COVID-19 patients from urine samples from healthy individuals. Quote, we have solid experience in training disease-related scent detection dogs. It was fantastic to see how fast the dogs took to the new smell, end quote, says dog risk group leader Anna Helm Bjorkman. After only a short time, the animals identified the urine of people infected by the novel coronavirus almost as reliably as a standard PCR test. The Finnish scientists are now preparing a randomized double-blind study in which the dogs will sniff a larger number of patient samples. Only then will the scent tests be used in clinical practice. Ohio regulators have imposed a last-minute permitting condition that could put an end to a wind energy project. The proposal was for a small wind farm along Lake Erie in Lakewood, located just west of Cleveland. The Ohio Power Siting Boards ruled the project could move forward, but only if blades on the demonstration project six turbines were turned off every night for eight months of the year. This requirement is intended to protect bats and birds. Environmentalists pointed out that the proposed construction site is not within a main migratory 
flyway for birds. An ornithologist who prepared a study for a draft environmental impact report had called it the lowest risk project he ever worked on. After months of negotiation, the developer had reached a compromise with regulatory staff last May that dropped the requirement. Throughout the proceedings in the, this case, the developer made it abundantly clear that a requirement to shut down the turbines from dusk till dawn for the majority of the year renders the project economically non-viable. After the compromise a year ago, the only two remaining opponents were re represented by an attorney who had done work for Murray Energy and often filed in win cases on behalf of a pro-coal company that did not disclose the source of its funding. Discovery in this case showed that at least some of the litigation expenses had been paid by Murray Energy. Clean energy advocates said that they expect the ruling to have a chilling effect on renewable projects in Ohio as it calls into question the legitimacy of the project. Quote, we were extremely disappointed to find out that what we initially envisioned as a victory for clean energy instead contained a poison pill that would undermine the entire effort, end quote, said Jane Harf, director of Green Energy Ohio. It calls into question not only the future of the project, but also the legitimacy of the approval process. A bald eagle nest with eggs has been discovered in Cape Cod for the first time in 115 years, according to the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife, as Newsweek reported. That nest is part of a dramatic uptick in the number of active nests, with more than 70 spotted this spring, according to a post on the Mass Wildlife website. While spotting active nests is not rare, one with eggs is. Also, for the first time, there is a documented case of eagles nesting on nearby Martha's Vineyard. The return of bald eagles is a testament to the strength of the Endangered Species Act, since the birds have recovered from the brink of extinction. Bald eagles recently improved from threatened to special concern on the Massachusetts Endangered Species Act list, thanks to successful conservation measures. Mass Wildlife embarked on an eagle reintroduction program in the 1980s that has led to an uptick in the population of bald eagles in the New England area. While bald eagles are no longer on the endangered species list, they are still protected under multiple federal laws, including the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act and the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. In 1985, the Indiana Non-Game and Endangered Wildlife Program began the Bald Eagle Reintroduction Program. 73 eaglets were obtained from Wisconsin and Alaska and brought to Indiana. They were placed in a 25-foot nest tower in a secluded bay on Lake Monroe. Currently, there are more than 300 nesting sites in Indiana. In 2016, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe launched a battle against an oil pipeline running through their ancestral lands. Despite their efforts gaining international attention, the 1,200-mile-long Dakota Access Pipeline was built anyway. The tribe lost that battle, but its members didn't let that defeat stop them from tackling the greater issue at hand, climate change. Tribal members have not stood still. They believed they needed to do something. So they built the first solar farm in North Dakota. It is located on the tribal reservation. 
The Cannonball Community Solar Farm adds 300 kilowatts to the grid, which may not sound like a lot, but it is for this community. Besides, it brings the tribe one step closer to ending its dependence on fossil fuels. The driving force for this development was Cody Two Bears. The solar farm will save the community nearly $10,000 annually in energy costs. This wind farm represents over 50% of all the solar infrastructure in North Dakota. The state still relies heavily on coal-fired utilities. Something like this solar farm is very special, but it is only the beginning, vows the tribe. And now for our feature, we will hear Enrique Sands from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talk about Monroe County water issues. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. It's not exactly how it went in the rhyme of the ancient mariner, but it comes pretty close. Here in Indiana, water seems plentiful. No matter where you are in the state, there's a river that's at most a county away. Even so, water is a precious resource. So precious that when there's a chance a federal project could affect the health of a drinking source, the locals put up a fight. That's exactly what's happening in Monroe County. Monroe County Board of Commissioners, its environmental commission, and two environmental groups have filed a lawsuit to stop the U.S. Forest Service from carrying out a management plan in the Hoosier National Forest because they have reason to believe that project will pollute streams that feed into Lake Monroe. Monroe County, the Hoosier Environmental Council, and Indiana Forest Alliance sued to stop the Houston South Vegetation Management and Restoration Project until alternative plans are considered. The plan calls for the harvest of thousands of acres of trees and herbicide treatment in a part of the Hoosier National Forest located in the northwest corner of Jackson County near Houston, Indiana. In the lawsuit filed in U.S. District Court in New Albany, county officials and the group said many of the activities called for in the plan will take place on steep slopes with highly erodible soils that would pollute streams that flow into Lake Monroe, the water source for more than 145,000 people. The Monroe County officials said they repeatedly raised the issue in comments and objections and requested alternatives that would better protect the environment. But the Forest Service denied the plan would adversely affect the environment and Monroe County residents. Monroe County District 2 Commissioner Julie Thomas said that the U.S. Forest Service dismissed all of their concerns for 18 months, leaving them with no other recourse but to file the suit. Thomas and other county officials submitted comments about the plan, saying they were concerned about degradation to the lake's already threatened water quality due to algae caused by sedimentation and other factors. Some algae can release toxins that have harmful effects on humans, kill pets and livestock, and impair drinking water supplies. The Forest Service responded to the commissioner's concerns about runoff pollution contributing to algae growth by stating that site-specific soil and water effects were already analyzed in a 2019 report. The report concluded the project could directly affect water quality through local erosions and sedimentation and cause point source contamination from equipment fluids and herbicide spray. However, it was restricted to the boundary of the South Fork of Salt Creek, one of four watersheds feeding into Lake Monroe, and did not analyze the management plan's effect outside that boundary or any alternatives presented by Monroe County officials. The report said the South Fork Salt Creek watershed was set as a boundary because it would be impossible to distinguish the project's impact from the effects of other land use activities in other watersheds. The lawsuit said the omission of the impact on the other watersheds feeding into Lake Monroe violates the National Environmental Policy Act, a federal law that requires federal agencies to assess the environmental effects of proposed federal actions prior to making decisions. We'll keep tracking this story. For Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan.
And I'm Patrick Callanan. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli. Blooming has locally grown co-op groceries since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time to hear Get Out and Hike. Jan Walker produced this feature. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. We're Jenny Donegan today, and she's going to talk to us about hiking during the pandemic. Jenny, thanks for being here today. You're so welcome. Where have you been hiking? I have a spot that um, that I just really love. It's uh, the hike over by Lake Griffey by the dam side. I was so excited just to get out after feeling like I'd been cooped up for a, a while, and I it was great. And I can tell you more about what that experience was some of the things that I encountered as far as like distancing and some of the beauty that's there that is really accessible to a lot of people. It's a very uh, moderate to low impact hike out there. Okay. Now I'm familiar with the part of Lake Griffey where the boathouse is, but you're talking about over by the dam. So how do people get out there? Well, you take Dunn. It's right past Martha if you're going on, forgive me, I don't know that highway. I think it's the stadium, kind of, if you're going away from the stadium towards Dunn. It's Dunn that goes across, and it goes through a lot of residential areas. And there's a water treatment plant there that's, I think, being demolished or is is being taken down. But as you crest over the hill, it's past Meadowwood. So that's a good way to know, okay? So Meadowwood is a good mark doing the circumference of Lake Griffey, which can be a little bit of trailblazing, but can be a fun adventure. But the hike you're talking about where you went during the pandemic is by a parking lot? Yes, so you'll come down past Meadowwood and continue on down, and it comes over a hill, and as you come down, you'll see the water treatment plant on the left, Uh And on the right is a kind of a gravel parking area and a fence and then a big open field. You'll see a path going through. They have a sign talking about safe distancing and hiking right there. So it's really good. And there were a lot of different demographics that were there. And Uh hey, they were in their little pod and they didn't bug me. So I had my yoga mat with me that day. And so what you do is you go across that field and it's maybe a I don't know, not very far, maybe a quarter of a mile or an eighth of a mile on that field. And then it crests to the opening of the dam. And there's these two 
It's really beautiful architecture showing the water flowing down and then you can look down to your left and see the water flowing into the trees. And then in front of you is a walking path that takes you across this cement walkway between the dam overflow to the creek there. So you want to be able to take your shoes off. It's kind of, I like it. I use it as my inner hiking work because I think nature is my, is my spiritual place. Yeah. So I use that as an opportunity to take my shoes off and just kind of take a little baptism in the water and refresh myself and take in the beauty and really just, you know, I think the key with really successfully hiking anytime and especially during the pandemic is to take your time. I wore a mask. It makes me slow down because my breath gets a little challenged and then I take it off when I rest and stuff, but just to be considerate to other people and then making eye contact. Right. So yeah, as I'm walking across the water, I can see somebody on the other side and they're just smiling and waiting. And then I get across and then we wait six feet and exchange high. And then I go up and they go across and it's, so it's really a joyful time to be out in nature. And just, and so the dogwoods were really beautiful and bloom and, and it's just nice to just be in nature where there's a lot of freshness and growth going on and the promise and hope that is good to balance ourselves. Oh, absolutely. I have never been to that part of Griffey and I think I'm going to go there this weekend. You paint a really, really good picture. So you saw a lot of people there, but did you feel like anybody was invading your personal space or not respecting your personal space or was everybody pretty respectful about distancing and so forth? It's pretty respectful, actually. My little treasure that I love, and I know you are going to fall in love with this side of Lake Griffey. There are, as you go up, there's this beautiful wooden walkways that are just artistic and, and architecturally beautiful after you pass the dam and you walk up through the dogwoods. And then you come up to where you can go up a trail and go into the woods up higher or you can go down lower by the water. And as you go down lower by the water, it's just beautiful. So the, the waterway is tucked in and out and in and out with this green grass and trees by the water and pretty views. And then you get around the bend. There was this sense between the people that I engaged with that day on that hike that, wow, thank goodness, we're so grateful we have this beautiful place to hike. and just a real respect for just whatever level of security people are needing at that time while you're out hiking during this time of uncertainty. So I think just respect for each other and respect for nature was going on. And yeah, it really helped balance me. Well, that's great news. I love getting good news and a bad news time. <laughs> I definitely want to go there because you really always do a very good job of painting a very nice picture about places. So Thank you, Jenny. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. But yeah, over on the boat side, I've hiked all the way around pretty much until you, re you reach a little dead end in the midst of the cattails. <laughs> but um, yeah. the side that you're talking about, I have never been to. So I'm going to check it out this weekend, providing it's not raining. But, you
that wraps up our show for this week. The Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report.